So I think the work on Africa, treating Africa not as a basket case that, you know, you just do what you can with humanitarian assistance, but a place that could be governed better. If you stop getting so many presidents for life and you stop feeding corruption, that uh, this is a continent that's better off, I think, because of those efforts. And then we can also say, what am I personally going to do about the effects of race? For me, it's education, education, and education, because it's not going to solve the inequality issue, but it gives you a fighting chance. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Condoleezza Rice. Condi is the Tad and Diane Taub Director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the Thomas and Barbara Stevenson Senior Fellow on Public Policy. She is also a founding partner of Rice, Hadley, Gates and Manuel LLC, an international strategic consulting firm. From 2005 to 2009, Condi served as the 66th Secretary of State of the United States, the second woman and first African-American woman to hold that post. She also served as President Bush's National Security Advisor from January 2001 to 2005, the first woman to hold that position. Condi previously served as a professor of political science at Stanford University and later as provost. Condi, welcome to the podcast. When I came to Washington, D.C. as George Bush's Treasury Secretary, You took me under your wing and you gave me a lot of helpful advice and everything from the proper protocol etiquette to policy. It was a real pleasure to work with you. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Thanks, Hank. I'm looking forward to our discussion too. Uh, We had a lot of great times in Washington, some of them pretty difficult, but it was a great (laughs) partnership. It sure was. Now, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Birmingham, Alabama and you had a close, loving family, and your parents were very special people. Tell us a bit about your family and also what it was like growing up in the segregated South. I wrote a book about my parents. I called it Extraordinary Ordinary People. And the reason that I did is in many ways, they were ordinary people. My dad was a high school guidance counselor, football coach, Presbyterian minister, later on university administrator. My mom was a school teacher and piano teacher. And so in that way, they were kind of ordinary, but they had these unbelievable expectations for me, the belief that I could do anything I wanted to do. I always said I couldn't have a hamburger at a Woolworth's lunch counter because of segregation, but they thought I could be president of the United States if I wanted to be. And they had me believing that as well, which is maybe the most remarkable thing about it. I've always said too, Hank, and this surprises people sometimes, that I'm fortunate to have grown up in segregated Birmingham because it gave me a sense of what was possible even under difficult circumstances. My parents had three things that they always said. They said, number one, you have to be twice as good. Now, if you are trying to be twice as good, you work twice as hard, now you're twice as confident. And it wasn't just my parents who said that, but their whole community, this was a community where I think everybody taught school. I think we had one lawyer, one doctor, everybody else taught school. Second thing they said is there are no victims. The minute you think of yourself as a victim, you've given control of your life to somebody else. And you might not be able to control your circumstances, but you can control your response to your circumstances. 
And then the final thing was actually something that my father said to me. We'd moved to Denver when I was 12. And uh, I was going to a school where there are very few black kids. Uh, it's a college prep school, girls' school. And somebody had not wanted to sit next to me because I was black. And my father said, well, that's just fine as long as they move. And that said to me, don't let somebody else's prejudice be your problem. You are fine. Don't feel put down by it. And so I grew up with a kind of armor about prejudice and a very strong belief that I could always overcome it. What a gift it is to have parents like that. What a really real blessing. Now, and this probably explains it, but you're one of the most disciplined, organized people I know. Were you that way as a kid? Is that is that where it came from? Well, I was pretty disciplined as a kid and even organized because I was always doing so many things, uh, particularly by the time I was figure skating uh, competitively when we moved to Denver. There was figure skating. I was also a serious piano student and there was yeah. school. And so I had to be organized. I didn't have any time. You know, it was five o'clock in the morning at the rink and then school and then piano practice and then back to the rink and then homework. And so I was pretty organized. I will say this, and this is something I say to people all the time. You need to identify what weaknesses you have. And one of mine was that I was a procrastinator. I was very good at reading the full book the night before the exam and passing the exam. And so I got into a habit of doing things at the last minute. Now, there are two things you can't do at the last minute. You can't practice the piano at the last minute. It turns out to practice one hour a day for eight days is a better result than to practice eight hours in one day. You also can't learn languages by kind of cramming. So I had to find a way to get over these tendencies toward procrastination. And it just reinforced the discipline point. I became a scheduler. So I scheduled everything. And to this very day, I schedule everything so I can use 15 minutes better than anybody I know. I can say, okay, I'm going to work on that little part of the Chopin for that 15 minutes. And so it was through trial and error. But yeah, I guess I'm one of those people who believes in discipline and organization. Yeah, I'm not as disciplined as you are, but I believe in doing things on time and scheduling. What I loved about working with you, when we, when I was going to come and see you in your office or meet with you or talk to you, and we had a time, boy, it happened that way. And you know, our boss, George Bush, was the same way. Very yeah. much the very much the same way. I think that's one reason that we got along so well. As a matter of fact, Hank, I'll tell you kind of a funny thing about it, but you will remember, he wasn't just on time, he was very often early. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, these poor heads of state started showing up earlier and earlier because the word kind of got out around the world. If you're going to be there with George Bush, you'd better be on time. Yeah. An interesting thing, because if the top person is late, everything in the organization doesn't work as efficiently. Everybody's sitting around waiting. Very inefficient. Makes a big difference. You know, you probably answered this when you said, you know, your parents had you believing even though you, you couldn't get a hamburger at the Woolworth counter, that you could be president of the United States. But your aspirations, did you ever really dream or set your sights on doing something like becoming the first black woman to be the secretary of state? I wanted to be Van Cliburn when I was young. <laughs> my, my ambition was to be a great concert pianist and play Carnegie Hall. I started studying piano at the age of three. Yeah. And I was always going to be a great concert pianist. And it was only... 
that epiphany when I went to the Aspen Music Festival School in the summer after my sophomore year. I was a piano performance major. And Hank, I met these kids who could play from sight everything it had taken me all year to learn. And they were 12 and I was 17. And I thought, eh, you know, I'm about to end up teaching 13 year olds to murder Beethoven. Maybe I'd better do something else. And that's when I went back. I wandered into a course in international politics. It was taught by Joseph Corbell, Madeleine Albright's father. Yeah. And I found what I wanted to do. But no, my, my ambition was to be a great concert pianist. The uh, international uh, came a bit later in life. It's a little bit like me. I was going to be a dual major in English and math. And after I took about my fifth advanced math course at Dartmouth, I decided I was going to focus on English when I had to start memorizing. Yeah. So, but let's, let's talk a bit about uh, piano because you are an accomplished pianist. So uh, talk about the role of music in your life, because even though you, you know, you, you gave up on being a concert pianist, you, uh, yeah, I remember, you know, in, in government, you were getting up at four or 4.30 to play the piano. Do you still do that? I still play. So I really loved playing the piano and I wanted to learn from the time I was three. My grandmother taught piano lessons. My mother, grandmother, great grandmother were all pianists. And so I learned because it was kind of the family business, but I loved it. After I decided not to be a major, I sort of dropped out of it for a while. You know, I taught piano lessons to make money in graduate school, something I'd said I never was going to do. I accompanied a little bit because that's the way you could make money. It was better than waiting tables. You know, it was a sort of totally instrumental thing to do. But funny enough, when I came out to Stanford, didn't even bring a p my piano with me. But when I became provost of the university in 1993, the dean of the law school was a violist. And he said uh, that he had a chamber music group, but I come start playing with them. And that's how I got back into playing. And then I started taking piano lessons because it was a way to make sure that I practiced. If you're about to have a piano lesson for two hours, you want to practice because two hours when you haven't practiced is a very long time. And so I started taking lessons and to this day, I take lessons. And one, one interesting thing about the new life that we're leading given COVID restrictions, when we got restricted and couldn't do things in person, I started taking piano lessons on Zoom. And that was good because as it turns out, my piano teacher, George Barth, who headed the piano department here at Stanford, retired and moved to Pennsylvania. But now I can still take lessons with him on Zoom. So that's just one of those ways that COVID-19 has taught us something new. It sure has, and, and many of us, and many things. Before we leave piano, can you share the story about your faith, your mother, and the key of C? Yes. Yeah. As I said, my mother was a really fine pianist and organist, and she played for churches. But she was, even though she was Methodist, and my family's Presbyterian, by the way, my dad was a Presbyterian minister, but my mom, as a young woman, she and her sister both played for Baptist churches because they said the Baptists paid better than the Methodists. Yeah. And so, you know how it is in a Baptist church, the uh, minister will just start raising a song and the pianist is supposed to kind of pick it up. Well, how did I start playing for Baptist churches? Well, I moved to California. I kind of not, wasn't going to church very much. And one Sunday morning, I was in the spice aisle of the Lucky Supermarket and this black man walked up to me, not that many black people in Palo Alto, walked up to me and said, that he was doing some things for his church picnic. And he says to me, do you play the piano? 
And I said, uh, yes, I do. And he said, well, my church is right down the street here. It's the oldest black church in the Bay Area. We need somebody to play the piano, which you can play. Well, now I'm thinking to myself, okay, the long arm of the Lord is reaching into the lucky supermarket to get me back to church. So I started playing, but this minister would just start a song. Call my mother. I said, mother, he just starts singing in no known key. What am I supposed to do? And she said, honey, play in C and he'll come back to you. And sure enough, it turns out if you play in C, which is the foundational key, people come back. So uh, that's how I got back to going to church was uh, thanks to the lucky supermarket. Wow, amazing. So I'm gonna change tack a bit because this last year, boy, have we witnessed a level of political chaos that none of us could have imagined, you know, a few years ago. What do you view as a root cause of today's political dysfunction? And how can we chart a better course? I know you've done a lot of work, a lot of research, thinking, writing about democracy. So how do you look at that? Well, we do have to get to the root causes. And the root cause isn't the election of a particular person. When people would ask me, was the Trump phenomenon a revolution or an evolution? I would say that an evolution, a revolution is what happens when you don't see an evolution taking place. And underneath this kind of populism that was represented by President Trump, this sense that institutions were not your institutions, they, that uh, the elites were against you, that those globalizing elites didn't understand you, they looked down on you. There was a very large part of the American population that was susceptible to that argument because unfortunately for some people it was true. If you ask yourself if the unemployed coal miner in West Virginia benefited from globalization, no. And so to the degree that we would talk, all of us who believed in global engagement, about the benefits of globalization, about the benefits of open markets, of free trade, comes along somebody who says, but not benefiting you. Now then the second thing that happens is that populists have to create an other. And that other it can be immigrants. Your problem is those illegal immigrants or those immigrants. Your problem is, we see on both right and left now, it's those technology companies. It's those big banks. And so even though we know that a lot of people who got left out, who didn't have the skills to keep up, a lot of it's automation. But actually, robots don't make good others. You can't say your problem is that robot. And so now we have, I think, a very divided society. We have people who are ready with the skills and the opportunities before them, and we have a lot of people who are not. And I have to tell you, Hank, that I think COVID-19 has deepened those inequalities. If you think about people like us, we have been completely able to be productive we're on Zoom, we're using Microsoft Teams, we are productive. If you're a knowledge worker, you've kept right on going. If on the other hand, you had to go to the shop floor or to a restaurant to work, now you're unemployed. So we have two classes of workers. We're also seeing in something that I know you care a lot about and I care a lot about in education, that the inequality of the parent who doesn't maybe even speak the language, but suddenly has to teach her kid at home, as opposed to those of us who can teach kids 
from our own educational background. I was actually homeschooled for one year. My first grade, I was homeschooled. Why? Well, the state of Alabama in its wisdom decided that unless you turned six by October 31st, you couldn't go to school till the next year. All right, well, I turned six on November 14th. But do you think my educated parents were gonna let me sit home for a year? No, my mother took a year off from being a teacher and she taught me. By the time she finished with me, I was probably third or fourth grade. But now that kid whose parents don't speak English or whose parents aren't educated, or even worse, I was talking to somebody from a Southern state, 40% of their citizens don't have access to broadband. Not having access to broadband today is like not having electricity. And so we have revealed, COVID-19 has revealed these deepening inequalities. It's a long way of saying that a lot of the disruption that we are feeling in the system is real. It's not because of one person, it's not because, it's real. And so we've got to go back and address those issues, the inequality in education, the inequality in income, the inequality of opportunity, and remove the pool in which populists are playing by actually taking care of the, the circumstances. Um, and I just say one other thing, Hank, we're actually pretty lucky. When I watched what happened on January 6th, I actually that night stayed up to watch as the Congress went back into the Capitol and did the really almost what seemed like routine work of counting the electoral votes. And I thanked God that night for James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and Mike Pence, because there you saw the power of institutions and so many countries don't have powerful institutions. We're very fortunate and they held even under great pressure. Yeah, it, it brought tears to my eyes, you know, and getting back to your point, you know, education is, should be a basic civil right. Yes. And the other thing that's been terrible during COVID is, you know, we have states that are opening bars and schools aren't open. Right. You know, it, it just is a travesty just a travesty. I mean, why shouldn't all the, you know, the teachers be vaccinated first? Why shouldn't they have been open? It's just so hard to understand. Now, you've, you haven't just seen the problem. You're working to do something about it. So you've recently teamed up with former Vice President Al Gore on a new initiative at Vanderbilt University that focuses on bridging the partisan divide. Yes. Talk about this and what are you hoping to accomplish? Well, this, uh, this, Vanderbilt project is really to try to bring people around the table who I think if we get beneath policy differences, and we have real policy differences, but we share values about democracy, about representative government, about opportunity, and we need to start to build on those shared values for some ideas that would bring us together rather than tear us apart. And I'll tell you, the conversations that we are having are great conversations. Uh, John Meacham is a terrific uh, person who's uh, involved. But I will tell you this, we need to do more than talk about our unity. And one idea that I think is, whose time has come, is national service. We don't know each other anymore. I talked about the elite, quote, ordinary people divide. You know, I remember when 2016 happened and President Trump was elected, it was almost as if people on the coast and elites wanted to have an anthropological dig about their 
citizens. You know, the Hillbilly Elegy was the most uh, famous book and why? Well, I need to understand what those people in Alabama think. Who are they? Well, when you have to do anthropology on your fellow citizens, it means we've stopped knowing each other. We used to know each other through military service. Uh, we used to know each other through religious institutions. Increasingly, people live behind their gated communities, send their kids to different schools than the poor, get their health care in ways that the poor cannot get their health care. And what we do then is we don't know each other. And so national service, I have a lot of students who are going to take a gap year because they don't want to learn remotely. Um, so how about a gap year where you go and serve someplace, not in the military, uh, not necessarily in the military, you go and serve someplace where you'll get to know people who are not like you. I think it would be a great thing for us to do. And it brings people together. I strongly agree with that. And how many times have we seen it when someone with a different background, when you have a chance to work together, whether it's in a company, whether the military or whatever, it just makes a big difference. And we're going to need to do this. We do. Now, yeah, could I just on that point, I just wanted to add, you know, you played football, you know, that sports is one place where people do come together. You know, when you watch those teams and you see, even in places that used to be quite segregated, like Alabama, you watch the Crimson Tide play, it's black players, white players. I'm sure they've come from very different backgrounds, but for that moment, they've got a common goal. And so we need to find uh, those opportunities, those activities that give us common goals. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about something else, which is related. You have a very unique perspective on the issues America has been grappling with around social justice and race. There's a lot of talk today, and it's really needed, but what do you think is missing from today's national conversation? How far have we come in addressing these issues? You know, because you, you saw them up close and personal a long time ago in Alabama, and what do we need to do to make more progress? First, to admit that we have made progress. When I hear people say, well, no, we haven't made any progress. First of all, that's just dispiriting. Okay, if we haven't made any progress, why try? Well, of course we've made progress. I always go back to the image of taking the oath of office for Secretary of State in front of a portrait of Benjamin Franklin sworn in by a Jewish woman Supreme Court Justice, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I say, you wanna tell me we haven't made progress? What would old Ben have thought of this? Right. So we have made progress, but we have to admit that our country had a birth defect of slavery and it marked us. It marks us even today. And we see color when we see each other. We're not going to be colorblind, but we can get to the place where even if I see color, it doesn't purport to tell me everything about that person. It doesn't tell me what they're capable of. It doesn't tell me what they think. It doesn't tell me what their background might be. And so now we can begin to engage each other uh, to know more about each other as individuals, even recognizing that we have this overarching element of race in our society. And then we can also say, what am I personally going to do about the effects of race? For me, it's education, education, and education, because it's not going to solve the inequality issue, but it gives you a fighting chance. And I believe that if each of us, all 300 million of us plus, 
has something that we want to do. You know, when you say something like systemic racism, it sounds too big. Systemic racism is somebody else's problem to solve because it must be a government program or it must be some law. Those are all important too. But our individual efforts to just chip away at the racialization of our society is, uh, I think, the most important thing we can do. Amen. You know, now let's talk about foreign policy, something you know a little about. Now, what do you see as the most important international priorities? The world is a pretty dangerous place right now. And how do you see the global order evolving over the next decade? Let me start at home because, Hank, without the United States, it will continue to be and maybe even more chaotic world because the United States for years provided a kind of global commons in terms of our willingness to sustain an open international economy, our willingness to speak for democracy and our willingness to provide security for so many. So when we step away, it's not as if the Germans step up or the Indians step up. It's the wrong sorts that step up, the Russians and the Chinese and so forth. So we've got to get our confidence back, which is why I think the domestic fracturing of America has got to be fixed as a prelude to our engagement in the world again in the way that we once did. But let's say that we're able to do that. Now, what does the world look like? Well, first and foremost, there is the challenge of China. You and I are both a part of, we're a part of a movement that believed that if you could integrate China into the international economy, even well before, by the way, their laws and their practices actually conformed with the WTO, if we could integrate them, ultimately that would be good for the international economy and it would uh, make China a responsible member of that international economy and it would, by the way, maybe even start to change China's course domestically and internationally. Now, I still believe that it was the right thing to do. When people say to me, well, did we make a mistake? So what, you're going to leave a billion three people outside of the system? Was that the right decision? No. But we all have to admit that we're a bit disappointed that we didn't get the responses from China, particularly protection of intellectual property, the uh, preferencing of national champions over foreign competition, whole parts of the economy that are still closed to foreign competition. And now it looks like the utilization of the mobilization of frontier technologies like AI and quantum computing for military purposes, for social control, uh, for a growth of a more authoritarian China. There is great disappointment about that, but disappointment isn't a policy. So how do we think about the policy? It's gonna have to do something we're not particularly good at, which is nuance. On the one hand, there are things where we have to confront. Uh, the freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, hands off Taiwan, we have to confront. We have to keep our military capabilities capable of being the, the peacemaker in the Asia Pacific. But we also need to cooperate with the Chinese on climate change, on North Korea. So there are those elements. In the middle, a whole sphere of what are we gonna do with each other economically? The two largest economies can't be at war with one another. 
there will be some elements. We're going to be separate internets. Their view of the internet and our view of the internet are irreconcilable. And I think in all of this, we need to better mobilize our allies and bring them in. You know, I'm not one for loyalty tests with our allies. Choose either China or the United States. The United States is fortunate. We've got more friends and allies than any great power in human history. And they're powerful allies, Japan and South Korea and Australia. I mean, the Australians, by the way, are my favorites because Everybody else, the Secretary of State is the 911 for the world. Can you come fix this? The Australians would call you up and say, We've got this mate. You know, there's a problem in the Marshall Islands. We'll solve it. Yeah. We'll let you know. So yeah. you have to love the Australians. But we've got these great allies. We then have, you know, European allies. And we have great new friends, or not new friends, but great friends like India, where our relationship is deepening in terms of defense and technology cooperation. So we have plenty to deal with China to set the context, but we're going to have to be nuanced in how we approach uh, the Chinese. Yeah, it's interesting. And just to, to uh, pile on to what you said, it's fascinating because I remember having a conversation with the head of state in China, and I was, you know, being very critical of some of their people they're doing business with, dodgy governments, you know, Iran, North Korea, and so on. And he said to me, Hank, who are we supposed to work with? You've got all the good allies. And the other thing you said is we can't force them to choose. Because I'll tell you, there's no ally I know of that's going to decouple from China economically. So if, if we're going to use a blunt instrument and basically say we want to constrain them, we want to decouple, if we can't realistically decouple and to try to, you know, because, you know, Germany just did a an investment treaty with China. You know, while we stayed out of the TPP, they've done, you know, the regional trade deal and they're looking at doing investment treaties with Japan and South Korea. So we clearly have to engage. Now, you, I want to switch to another one. That's, that's, this is a much different kind of an adversary here. You know, you're a longtime expert on Russia. Well, when I first met you, you came to talk to me when I was running Goldman Sachs about Russia. So, how do we deal with Putin? Well, you know, Russia is a declining power and its assets are all negative assets, like the ability to throw its military weight around in a place like Syria, or for that matter, Venezuela, the ability to disrupt people's elections, the ability to launch cyber attacks. You know, when is the last time that you bought something made in Moscow that wasn't of petroleum? And don't yeah. say vodka, that might be France these days. So yeah. actually it's a declining power, but Putin's will to make Russia relevant in international politics is very strong. Now, I will say this. We're seeing something right now in Russia that we ought to pay attention to. Navalny's return, Alexander Navalny's return, the opposition leader that the Russian security services undoubtedly had tried to poison. Let's be very clear. If you're going to try to poison Navalny, you better kill him because now you've got a live martyr. And that's Putin's worst nightmare. And we have seen in the streets of Russia now protests that are larger than anything we've seen in a long, long time. And we're seeing it against the backdrop of low oil prices, which makes it hard for the Russians, uh, Putin in particular, to hand out that largesse that he used to hand out to his constituencies, old people and pensions, military people, rural people, his kind of constituency. 
we have to keep our eye uh, while we're checking. We have to check him at certain places. You know, I thought that first the Obama administration and then the Trump administration did exactly the right things in putting heavy brigades, they're called, in the Baltic states and in Poland after the events in Ukraine. Now, a heavy brigade with Americans in it says to Putin, if you attack Estonia or Latvia or Poland, you're going to have to kill an American to do it. Putin is not suicidal. And so that was an important thing we did. The Trump administration did something important in arming the Ukrainians with lethal weapons so that they could defend themselves. But that said, with the Russians, we need to play for the long run here. Half of Russian citizens were not conscious at the time that the Soviet Union collapsed, not conscious. And so I think we have a chance to build on something that I have personally witnessed. I was a graduate student in Moscow in 1979. Citizens looked at their feet. They wouldn't talk to you. In the years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they traveled. They went to our universities. I had them in my graduate school of business classes. They went to work in banks. They went to work in law firms. There's a whole generation of Russians now who Putin is not their future. And while we're sanctioning people and doing all of that stuff, I don't mind sanctioning Putin's cronies, but let's not cut off Russia and Russians because I believe that in time, they will take back control of their own future. Yep, that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, I wanna switch gears again and talk about the role of sports in your life. You know, I didn't realize your father was a football coach, so I see where that came from. And I didn't I didn't know about the figure skating, but I know you were one of the first women to be admitted as a member of the Augusta National Golf Club, home of the Masters Tournament. And you're an avid golfer. You take golf lessons. What is it about golf that appeals to you? Well, I've always loved sports. Um, my dad was a football coach. I was supposed to be his all-American linebacker. I'm an only child. So he had to do something. So he taught me all about sports. By the way, my mother, who was the musician, never picked up a ball or bat of any kind. So it was my dad and me in sports and my mom and me with arts. You know, if you're an only child, you kind of have to play both sides of it. But in sports, I figure skated for all those years. And then at about 18, I realized, you know, this is not an adult sport. You can't call somebody and say, let's go figure skating. And so I took up tennis. My dad had been a three-sport letterman, football, basketball, and tennis at Johnson C. Smith University, historically black college. And he was delighted when I took up tennis. I played, you know, club tennis and so forth. Never thought about golf. Now I go to Washington. The summer after I'm secretary of state, my cousin and some other friends and I went to vacation at the Greenbrier in West Virginia. Her husband gave her golf lessons, gave me buddy lessons. I loved it. And so I would go out to Andrews Air Force Base whenever I had a chance. I would land from China and go for two hours out to Andrews Air Force Base so I could hit balls. Now, why? I think actually what then appealed to me about golf was I was outdoors. You know how it is, Hank, because you were in a similar position. When you are in those positions, they pick you up in front of your house. You're in the car. You go into your elevator at work. Maybe the furthest you walk is a few steps from your car to the west wing door of the White House. You're never outside. And I was outside and I was on an Air Force base so I could go wander off into the woods and find my ball and my the security detail was okay with it. And so initially, I think it was just that sense of freedom. 
But now it's that sense of, I am going to learn to control that little white ball if it's the last thing that I do. It is the <laughs> most challenging, frustrating sport. And I just love playing it because I think because it's hard. Well, I know how hard it is because I had never played it. I always said golf's a game. It's not a sport. And I, <laughs> I wrestled. I played football, you know, real sports. Oh, yeah. real so, sports. When I, so when I got to Dartmouth and we had a football picnic and people were trying to see if they could hit a golf ball over the Connecticut River. I thought I could do it. And I swung three times at the golf ball on the, on the tee and missed it. <laughs> so they, I knew I didn't have a future in that sport, but I, <laughs> I realized the closest I've got is miniature golf and it's great amusement for my family. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, golf, the thing about golf is it is, it's really challenging. A lot of great athletes think they're just going to pick it up and play it. It's actually pretty tough. And Tiger Woods did make it cool to be an athletic golfer. So now if you look at the golfers, they're no longer kind of the guy with the beer belly. They look like real athletes. So uh, it's quite a difficult sport. Yeah, one of my memories with you was I was out in the Bay Area and, you know, sometime in January, I was at your home with your golf pro watching the national championship football game yes, because yes. you were an inaugural member of the selection committee. Right. And uh, you told me how you, you know, just you went about that like everything else you do. You know, you did it for real. And so you're watching all the every game and glued to it and trying to figure out how to rate the different teams. So now you're no longer on that committee. Is it a relief not to have to, to just watch football for the fun of it and not to have to watch it as part of a job? Well, it is kind of nice to now watch the games that I want to watch. Uh, you know, I was assigned a couple of leagues and you've had to watch every game. And at one point, the Mountain West was doing their games on Tuesday night at 730. And so, you know, there was some, but I loved it. It was the best committee I'd ever been on. People were just trying to get to the right answer. We would have a lot of, you know, discussion, never heard a raised voice. People were really great. I will say that I look at football differently now. I've always been an X's and O's person. My father taught me the sport, not just to enjoy it, but also to really analyze it, you know? So he would say, Condoleezza, what was that? Oh, daddy, that was a trap block. Okay, well, that, what are they doing now? Oh, daddy, they're setting up a screen. You know, I'm five years old and this is what I'm doing. So I always loved that part of the game, but being on the committee, I also was in the company of great coaches like uh, Ty Willingham and Barry Alvarez and, and one Tom Osborne, the great uh, Nebraska legend. And I got to see the game through their eyes. And I think now I watch the game differently and frankly, enjoy it more. Yeah, well, that's terrific. Now, what a return to Secretary of State. So you helped the country deal with some very complex issues, you know, involving North Korea and Iran. You negotiated a nuclear energy agreement with India. You advanced, which I really watched you do. I let you do all of those things, but human rights and democracy around the world. When you reflect back on your tenure at state, what gives you the most satisfaction, Gandhi? I think the most satisfaction is that we actually stood for the proposition that nobody should have to live in tyranny. 
and made that a key part of our policy. You know, it wasn't possible on every day to act on that. I remember going and giving a big speech in Egypt about democracy and then having to talk to Mubarak uh, because we had to deal with the, the tunnels in the Gaza Strip. And so people would say, well, how can you deal with Mubarak and still talk about democracy? Well, you know, the United States is not an NGO. You have to deal with governments that you don't like. But I think it was that strong emphasis on democracy and not just because it was right, which it is, but also there's something that political scientists can now demonstrate. It's called the democratic peace. Democracies don't fight one another. I would also say democracies don't employ child soldiers. They don't harbor terrorists knowingly. They don't invade their neighbors. And so democracies also ultimately make the world safer. And so it would be that. And then one other thing which really, really lives on, which is the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which really saved the whole continent. We forget that when he came into office in 2001, the continent of Africa was literally dying because the pandemic was raging across the continent. And through a sense of obligation coming in large part out of his faith, but also a sense that the United States, as he said, much has been given, much is expected. We were able to, there's still no vaccine, but to begin to provide antiretrovirals to a whole continent to the 15 most affected countries. And one of the things that we did, Hank, was we built out healthcare systems for those countries so that they could deliver the antiretrovirals, sometimes by bicycle out into the bush. And to this day, those healthcare systems still are operating and are helping them deal, for instance, today with uh, the coronavirus. And so, yes, I'm grateful, having been National Security Advisor on September 11th, that we didn't have another attack. I'm grateful that we were able to set up the kind of apparatus for counterterrorism that we have today. I'm glad that we gave the Iraqis a chance at uh, democracy and, you know, they're still trying. But more than anything, I think America is best when it shows not just its power, but its compassion. And the AIDS relief really showed the compassion. It was fascinating because I was talking to Bono the other day, and he's a big fan of President Bush, of you, and the whole team. And he said that you guys saved 20 million lives in Africa. Now, I don't know where that number came from, but just to even think about it, it's just mind-boggling. What an accomplishment. Yes, and something that I think lives on. And, and, you know, we also did a lot of work on associated diseases, things that happened from malaria and the like. And so I think one thing that uh, George W. Bush gets a lot of credit for in Africa, but maybe not in the United States, is how much Africa was at the center of our foreign policy agenda. We increased foreign assistance to Africa by factor four. Colin Powell helped to end the civil war in Sudan. We ended the civil war in Liberia. We forgave debt for heavily indebted African countries. We advocated for girls' education in those countries. President Bush spent a lot of time with African leaders because, and we we had the Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, which you helped with, uh, Hank, which said, we're going to make big bets on countries that are trying to govern wisely, that fight corruption. So $870 million to Tanzania and $435 million to Ghana, et cetera. So I think the work on Africa, treating Africa not as a basket case that, you know, you just do what you can with humanitarian assistance, but a place that could be governed better. If you stop getting so many presidents for life and you stop feeding corruption, that uh, this is a continent that's better off, I think, because of those efforts. 
Yep, and it was very unusual for a Republican president to be advocating for and successfully getting big increases in foreign aid. And it was just really remarkable. So I want to end this conversation today with young people because you spend a lot of time with them. And the other thing I really admired when I went to see you and you were teaching. So you, you weren't just, you know, playing the piano and golf and so on and everything else. You were teaching classes. So young people, you know, today are entering the workforce amidst a rapidly changing world. What advice do you give them for how to navigate today's many uncertainties and how to succeed in their lives and careers? Let me start by saying that this generation is the most public-minded that I've taught. In more than 30 years of teaching, they want to do something bigger than themselves. They're motivated by the desire to do good. And so that's a great place to start. But I say to them, take your time a little bit. You know, you aren't going to be whispering in the ear of the CEO or the senator in your first job. You know, they will say, I want my first job to be meaningful. Well, actually, maybe your first job is just going to be your first job. And what's meaningful is somebody pays you to do it for the first time. And so I think they need to understand that it takes time and you have to build a career. You can't jump to the next level. <laughs> You know, they're kind of always looking over their shoulders about what's the next best thing. Well, be good at what you're doing first, and then a second thing will come and be good at that, and a third thing will come. And so that's the first point that I make to them. Uh, secondly, out of this whole COVID circumstance, I know it's been hard. I have friends, kids, and actually my godson who, you know, they were taken on the world when they graduated, and now they're living at home, and it's not what they anticipated. But what they can hopefully take from this is that they are both resilient and they're adaptable. And that's going to help going on down the road. And the final thing that I would say is um, social media and the way we get our information can very much lead you to live in an echo chamber. It can lead you to live in a place where you think so highly of your opinion because you actually never talk to somebody who disagrees with you. Yep. And so I say to my students, if you are in the company of people who say amen to everything you say, find other company. We are encouraging our students to say, well, I'm offended by that. Well, you don't actually have a constitutional right not to be offended. That wasn't actually written into the constitution. So if you're offended, how about you turn to the person next to you and say, you know, that was offensive and let's have a conversation about why that hurts me as an African-American or as a woman. And so, I think that we aren't doing them any good by telling them that the world is going to be perfect. We started with my parents in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, and they didn't say, you know, it's so awful to grow up in Birmingham, Alabama. They didn't say, oh, you know, it's so unfair what's happening to you. They said, you have to be twice as good and you'll beat them at their own game. They never expected me actually to grow up in a world without prejudice. So they tried to give me ways to cope with it and ways to overcome it. And so I love that our students at Stanford and other places want the world to be perfect. They don't want there to be any prejudice. They don't want to be any harm, any hurt, any sense of being offended. But that's actually not the way that the world is. And I would say finally to them, the best thing you can do is to find great mentors, but not by walking up to people and saying, will you be my mentor? That's a, yep. that's a mentorship is earned, but there will be people in your life 
who will see more in you than you see in yourself. And those are the people you want to be around. But then you have to earn it. You have to show them that it's worth it. And oh, by the way, they may not look like you. If I had been waiting for a black female Soviet specialist role model mentor, I'd still be waiting. <laughs> My mentors were white men. They were older white men like Brent Scowcroft and Joseph Corbell. And so I think we, we just need to make sure that we're presenting the world as it is, telling them you can make the world the way that it should be, but uh, it's gonna take some work. It's not gonna happen overnight. Well, I, I tell you, I have the same conversation in, in terms of the first advice you give where all these people are looking for wanting to be career engineers or I want to lead something or I want to manage something. And I said, listen, it may not be a perfect job, but there's a right job for you and you can afford anything other than not to learn. So you've got to, you know, you got to be good at something before you're going to go do all these other things and save the world. So Condi, this has been absolutely terrific. And I tell you, I, for one, am so grateful that you're letting your light shine brightly in so many different areas. And it's just really inspirational for me to hear it. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Hank. And I just want to say you are a good friend and you were a great partner when we were in government and you continue to do, you and Wendy, amazing things for our world. So thank you for that too. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.